the power of connection and like just connecting with different people has always kind of been a passion of mine. Like I love connecting with people, especially in the outdoors and being active. But I immediately went to people and athletes who had been in my situation or found stories to where I could relate to um, those stories of those individuals who have had really traumatic accidents. And that honestly, like that helped me so much. I met some of the most incredible people and and started following some of the most inspiring stories. And really that I learned really early on by connecting with some of those athletes and hearing more about their stories and seeing how far they had come, you know, in their journey really inspired me to just continue taking one step in front of the other. I'm Jamie Mo Crazy, and you're listening to Life Gets Mo Crazy, where we'll hear from people who either been through a trauma or helped someone else through. Listen and learn strategies you can implement in your life so when a metaphorical avalanche slides you down the mountain of life, you can climb an alternative peak with the best view. I'm here with Tina Wismer, who was climbing in Moab, and when she was rappelling, she fell 25 feet from the ground on June 6, 2020, so a year ago, and talk about 2020 misfortunes. (laughs) (laughs) So Tina, thanks for joining, and we're going to talk about when your life changed in the blink of an eye and how you've learned from that experience and climbed an alternative peak. Thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate you having me. This is actually the first time I've talked about my story outside of social media, but publicly, um, which is really cool because my accident took place about, well, actually it's been a year ago last weekend. So I was able to celebrate by being in the mountains with friends and mountain biking, and it's been a wild, wild journey. Um, But I'm really happy to be here. Um, I will happily tell you about what happened one year ago on June 6th that changed my life. Um, I was actually going on a climbing trip. It was the first time I had actually been canyoneering and I was headed out with a few friends. There were four total, including myself, and we were going to Moab and um, getting ready to do some rappelling in Pritchett Canyon, Moab. So that's otherwise known as the Rock of Ages. It is a pretty popular spot for canyoneering. So what is canyoneering? So, you know, that's a, I I love how you asked that question. Um, I, I would say that canyoneering is a mix between um, scrambling. It's a mix. It's mixed with rappelling as well with um, kind of traversing through different slot canyons. Um, and I, I was newer to canyoneering, but it does include a lot of rappelling and a lot of, it's just a sport that involves rope. Um, so we were in Pritchett Canyon, Moab, and we were headed out there and there was this huge, huge storm. We were outside of Moab driving in and it was just a crazy, crazy sandstorm. We almost canceled the trip, but, um, the next day it actually had lightened up and the clouds, you know, moved out and the sun was shining. And so we decided to move forward with our canyoneering, um, adventure, like through Moab. So 
um, there were three different sections where we were going to have to repel. And the first section was about a 200 foot drop. The second section was about 75 and the last section was a hundred. And I was the last one to repel first. Um, both of the females that I was with one, which was a friend, the other one, which was a, an acquaintance had gone first, um, and had repelled down, um, the sections before me. So I had kind of taken it on myself and then also felt like, you know, I should be one that goes first as well. So on the last repel, um, we had gotten to that section and I was getting ready to just pretty much, you know, I was putting on a harness. I was getting ready to repel down this hundred foot, um, cliff that actually was free falling. So it didn't have a rock in front of it, which was really crazy. Um, so the person that was guiding us, he wasn't a licensed guide. However, he was somebody who had done this line like a million times. He knew, um, the trail really well. He, you know, had given us a lot of feedback of how, um, a lot of climbers had done this repel and so, or this, this one section, and I, I'm actually probably murdering the way I'm saying this because repelling is just not my sport. But um, so at this time, I was actually free falling. And um, at the very beginning of this repel, this this guy had mentioned either choosing to repel off the lower level. Um, what do you even call it? So the lower level, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Um not a carabiner, but an anchor. Oh my goodness. So the lower level anchor, it was like hooked to the ground. So if we were to go over the edge, we would be coming off of the ground versus choosing a anchor that was about 10 feet off of the ground. And if we were to use that one, then it would be a little bit easier on, on, on all of us. We were all pretty new to, to repelling in Moab. So he chose the higher anchor and, um, so it was about 10 feet on each side. So that's about 20 feet total in difference. And so as I'm repelling off, I'm, I'm headed down this like, you know, crazy repel where I'm free falling and I get to about 75 feet and I'm pulling this rope out of my backpack. Right. So there's not anybody at the bottom who's belaying me because I'm the first one to repel off of this cliff. And I pull the bottom of the rope out of the bag and I'm sitting there and it's crazy how fast, like things, like how quickly I made a decision to either hold onto the rope or let go. But so I yell up, so I'm yelling up to everybody and I'm like, you guys, I think something is wrong. And I mentioned, I was like, the rope is in one hand and my carabiner is in the other hand and there's no stop or not. And the, the gentleman who had taken us out yells down and he's like, no, do not let go of the rope. And at that very moment, I didn't even have a chance to even think there was just something inside of me that just said drop. So I, without even thinking dropped and I had felt I had fallen about 25 feet. I hit the ground straight on my, I landed straight up on my two feet and I was pretty much cannon bolted back to my back. And so immediately at that point in time, I just felt like in this huge sensation of fire. And I was just thinking like, oh my gosh, like, you know, maybe I just broke my ankles. I knew something was wrong at that time. And so I'm laying in this canyon 
with like my bottom half, like from my waist down, just on fire. And I could not look down. I just would not look below my waist. Um, so at that point I'm just screaming and in just so much pain and agony. And, um, the guy who took us out actually came down the rope right after me and was like, I need to go get help. So he put one of his jackets over the top of me and like ran to go and get help. And this was the last, um, area. This was the last rappel, the last cliff that we were on for the day. So luckily he had to go probably about two miles to get help. Um, I waited about an hour and 40 minutes in that Canyon before anyone got to me. So paramedics came, um, there were two additional climbers with me. One had made it down who was pretty lethargic. She was very scared and just nervous. And I actually had no idea that bones were hanging out of my leg until the paramedics came and, asked how I was doing and asked if there was an overflow of just like a huge amount of blood. And the girl that had come down after, after me had mentioned, like, she was just kind of, she was nervous and scared. And she was just like, listen, there's no, there's not a ton of blood, but her bones are hanging out of her legs. So at that very moment, I was just shocked, just shocked. And I'm sure you can relate. You've been in a similar situation like this. Like, you know, I'm just kind of in and out of you know, just being with it and not being with it. Um, and at that point in time, the paramedics are like, listen, Tina, we're going to have to shoot you with a ketamine shot. We're actually going to give you two ketamine shots. These are horse tranquilizer shots. And we have to pop your bones back into your leg and it's going to hurt like hell, but you're not going to remember it. And so that's exactly what had happened. So at that time, I could hear them. I could hear my bones pop and I was screaming so loud. I've actually heard a recording of that evening just recently. It's the first time I ever heard it. And I mean, the fear and the terror in my voice is just absolutely unreal. And so, um, as they did that, I could hear, you know, my bones, you know, pop back into place. And then they mounted me onto a stretcher. They got me onto a stretcher and I just went to la la land. Like I was completely out of it. Um, and at that point the drugs just really took over. So I could just see like different lights in the distance when the paramedics all had like headlamps on and they were all shining down on me. Um, but I, it looked like these lights were just in the distance and it almost felt like I was in a Tetris game, which was really interesting. Um, but they had to repel me down another section and then they had to get me to a four by four and put me on a four by four and then get me to an ambulance. And then the ambulance took me to the Moab hospital where I was there for, I don't even know how long it might've been like, maybe I would say maybe like three hours, um, before I ended up in another ambulance to the university of Utah hospital. So when your mind was starting to come back at the university of Utah hospital, so you, you remember this journey, but as you said, it kind of felt like you were in Tetris. It didn't really feel real. No. Yes. The drugs, it was just a crazy amount of drugs and it did. It felt like these, like this wall was just like tumbling down. So it almost looked like a Tetris game. It was just like, it was so crazy. And 
I just, I can't even describe it, but it was just like these blocks were just falling and I could see light in the distance and I could hear voices in the distance. It's almost like if you were standing in a tunnel and you could hear people really far out, like echoing voices, echoing. Um, that's almost like what that was the reality I was living at that point. But those people and those lights were right next to me, which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that's super interesting. So when your mind was starting to come back at University of Utah, and you began to realize that like, something had happened, what was going through your mind at that time? Oh, my gosh, that's That is a moment I'll never forget. I actually didn't wake up until I didn't wake up until after my first surgery. So right when I got to the U of U hospital, the doctors had operated on me. They needed to clean out all the wounds and figure out how serious, you know, what I, you know, what they were looking at and like how serious, you know, my breaks and everything I went through really was. So I woke up and it was still, it was, I felt like it was the middle of the night and both my parents were standing right next to me. And my mom was just really worried, basically in tears. And at that point, all I could think about was like, okay, this is serious. Like I can feel this pain. I was super drugged up, but I, all I could think about was, am I going to walk again? Like all I wanted to do was walk again. So that's, that was the main, that was the main thing that went through my head. And at that point I I couldn't really even feel anything. I was so numb. My parents just were like, you know, it's going to be okay. And the doctors were like, okay, we're going to take you up to your room. Now we'll give you the details when we get up to the room. And my parents were like, all right, we're going to meet you up there. You know, we'll meet you up in your suite. And the doctor right in front of me said, your parents, you guys, you can't come. And it was because of COVID and the COVID restrictions in the hospital are very strict. And so that was the very moment that I was like, okay, like I didn't know for how long I thought that they weren't just going to be there for like the night and maybe could come back later. Cause I just wasn't wrapping my head around exactly what was going on, but the doctors were just like, they can't come with you. So, so I, that that's basically where my head was, was like, am I going to walk again? And I'm going to find out the details in a few and my parents can't come with me. And I was just on a lot of drugs. (laughs) So, so did you learn how to walk again? Yeah. Yeah. Over time. Um, I did, I did. I've come a long way in the past year and, um, I spent about a month in the hospital and then another month in rehab up at the Rocky mountain rehab facility in Heber, Utah. And so that was a trip because, I then came to realize my, my parents and my family couldn't be with me. Friends couldn't be with me because of COVID. So I was spending a lot of time on FaceTime with my parents and with friends to kind of just keep me distracted from the insane amounts of pain I was in. Like I had three major surgeries in the hospital and laying in those, in that bed, in those hot, in that hospital bed after my surgeries probably put, it was just like, it put laying in that Canyon to shame. My post-surgery pain was undescribable. It was so difficult. It was so painful. And I couldn't have nerve blocks, um, which, you know, obviously blocks the pain from going to your brain and having you respond to the pain. So I had 48 hours after each surgery of just excruciating pain. 
And my mom would just get on the phone with me and she would, she'd read scriptures to me. She would talk to me about like what the future would hold. And then little by little after time, I started getting better. Um, And then I had like nurses coming in and physical therapists coming in that were helping me transfer myself from, you know, the bed to a wheelchair and using like a little wooden, I don't know, like a wooden block to assist me with getting from point A to point B from the bed to the wheelchair. And then um, I just started getting stronger, but still dealt with a lot of pain. And then finally, like after a month, it was about four weeks in the hospital, they released me to the rehab facility um, where again, that was just a nightmare in itself as well. The, the rehab facility couldn't get my pain under control when I first got there. So I had to take another ambulance back to the university of Utah hospital to get my pain under control. Um, so the health system and learning how to navigate that whole piece was just, um, a learning experience in itself. But, um, so I managed to get out of both rehab in the hospital and then had an in-home nurse and, um, an in-home physical therapist. And they continuously would come every single day and help me move. And then I would progress. And then I finally got to go to out of, you know, physical therapy out of home. And that's where I started like taking my first steps and really learning how to walk again. And that was just an experience in itself because, because it was like walking on glass shards. It was like walking, like, like if you were to stick your feet in a bucket and it was just full of mud and twigs and glass, that's what it felt when I started taking my first steps. So it was just, just uber painful. Um, but little by little, I just kept getting stronger and just was not allowing myself to give up in any way, shape or form. Um, I, the silver lining was also work. I started a, um, the digital arm to the park record here in Park City, Utah, which is a digital agency. And at that time, we were doing extremely well, and I couldn't just let things go. So I actually worked about after three weeks of surgeries, I started working again, and everybody was just like, this is insane. But it was honestly the silver lining because it kept me so distracted from all the pain I was going through. Um And so moving forward, you know, I was just getting stronger, not giving up, focusing on routine, focusing on things to just get me through my day and distract me from all of the pain that I was kind of suffering from. Yeah, Um, I found found that like lots of people that I've interviewed and, and talked with, if you have a trauma, something that's good is a distraction from it. So like, as you mentioned in the hospital when you had like the severe pain from the surgeries, something that was extra challenging for you is because it was 2020, nobody could be there with you to distract you, but finding a FaceTime like with your mom to distract you. And then when you get home, going back to work was a distraction for you. And for me, that was like going, I went back to Westminster College. Um, It was about a year after my coma, but to be able to have a distraction and like set things I have to do and accomplish that was separate from anything related to my injury helped me a lot. So I bet it, so I could see that it does help. 
Absolutely. So, um, you know what, all, like also like really helped me. And I, I learned like really early on, I, I think like the power of connection and like just connecting with different people has always kind of been a passion of mine. Like I love connecting with people, especially in the outdoors and being active, but I immediately went to people and athletes who had been in my situation or found stories to where I could relate to um, those stories of those individuals who have had really traumatic accidents. And that honestly, like that helped me so much. I met some of the most incredible people and and started following some of the most inspiring stories. And really that I learned really early on by connecting with some of those athletes and hearing more about their stories and seeing how far they had come, you know, in their journey really inspired me to just continue taking one step in front of the other. And not only that, like that is still continuing to this day. Like I am finding myself back on a mountain bike and trying to hike. I still can't walk super far. I I can walk about a mile to a mile and a half before I start feeling quite a bit of pain. Um, but I still reach out to those athletes who have had like serious accidents where they're paraplegic now, or, you know, they just, the being active just doesn't look the same. And they've given me advice on equipment to use, um, you know, how to use it, like for mountain biking, for instance, um, like get an extra chain ring because it'll assist you getting up the mountain a little bit easier. And either way, like these people are so inspiring and they're warriors. And I never thought twice about some of these individuals. Like how often do you walk by somebody in a wheelchair and actually think twice? Sadly, I wasn't one of those people that thought, you know, past somebody just being in a wheelchair, I would just walk by them and be like, okay, Hey, you know, just another person. But those individuals are honestly the warriors. Like what they go through on a day to day is unbelievable. And to be able to get a glimpse into that and like have to live that life with like not being able to walk was just a, I mean, it, I I can't even describe what I went through and like what they go through. Um, it was just, it was just, it gave me a new perspective on life and it was just really eye opening. Yeah. And what they go through and also how they, they go through things and also create opportunities for themselves, get active, get outside. That was a big thing that played a role in your recovery and the people that you're looking up to um, who are outside and active. I just think it's so interesting. Like something that fascinates me is if you have a trauma like this happen, you have two choices. You can either sit at the bottom of the mountain or you can climb an alternative peak. And for many people, they're climbing changes in multiple ways, like how they're going to reach the outcome that they want, yet they still try to climb, which is so inspiring because um, it's it's developed more and more recently. And we have places like the National Ability Center, which helps people who have different ability levels and stuff like that. Yet it the fact that people are still getting active in outdoors is just phenomenal because outdoor therapy, I think is such an important part of the healing process. Absolutely. It's definitely changed my life. I mean, I've always been a pretty active person, but going through something like this, you really learn to appreciate like, you know, people just walking, like even just, just walking in general. It's like, 
You know, like I, I look at people running these days and I'm like, man, I wish I could do that. But there are so many others that have been through way worse and they suffer way worse. And I'm thankful that I've been able to make it as far as I have come. Um, but you know, I mean, it's just, it's a constant, it's like, it's exhausting at times because I wake up and I just continue to think like, how am I going to get myself one step closer to where I was as an athlete before my accident? Like, I want to be able to run again. I want to be able to get on a snowboard. Last year was the first year I didn't buy a season's pass in my entire life. And it was a mental game, but I knew like what I did to really help myself was I took myself out of that situation. I moved to St. George, which is, you know, obviously in the desert here in Utah. And I took myself away from the networks and the groups of people that were living and breathing, you know, backdoor snowboarding, slipboarding or backcountry riding, or, you know, being on the mountain because I couldn't do any snow sports. So I, I went to St. George and I was able to heal and get on my mountain bike and work with a trainer out in St. George And that really worked for me because I didn't have the distractions of not being okay mentally because I couldn't be on the mountain, even though all my friends and family were on the mountain, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's something that does make a lot of sense. And in connection to that, it's like when I stopped competing professionally in the year after my accident and it was just kind of ripped away from me with the accident. And I thought it would be fun to go to some competitions and cheer my friends. And my little sister Jeannie was still competing. So I'd go with her to the competitions and I just sobbed the entire time. And I realized I had to remove myself from that lifestyle to rebuild my lifestyle because it no longer included competing. And so now I'm okay going back to competitions, but I had to totally remove myself. So that's like you removing yourself to St. George, like just getting out of that. So you're not reminded constantly. Right. Right. And it's super powerful. I mean, if you understand, like, I feel like I'm the type of person that knows, you know, I know how to, to read my body. It's like, if I'm having like a down day and I'm mountain biking and it's just because maybe I am fatigued or I put in too many miles with throughout the week, Um, I know that I need to pull back and maybe do yoga or just kind of slow it down. But I feel like it's the same for outside of just athleticism. It's like, you know, understanding like what you need, not just physically, but mentally to make yourself healthy or to help yourself get healthy, I guess, you know, and for, for you, it was, you know, maybe not going to the competitions immediately after your accident. For me, it was like, get out of get out of Park City so I'm not surrounded by the people who are constantly doing snow sports. Yeah. And one of the important things that you mentioned is like understanding yourself. And so Mo Crazy Strong teaches the Mo Crazy Method, which focuses on being your own personal best. And the important thing about that is everyone's like, okay, be your own best. I, I could understand that, like be successful, how to achieve. But then after my accident, I really understood what the be your own personal best meant. It means that some days your own personal best is taking a rest day. Some days your own personal best is performing at a high level. And it, and it changes so much day to day and also at different points of your life. Like, For me, my personal best one time was doing a double flip at X Games. And then another day, my personal best was unscrewing the top of a bottle of water. 
or wow. being able to to wow. drink a bottle of water, walk upstairs, you know? So it changes a lot, which is like the same for you. Like your own personal best every day is is different and right. you've got to build off of it. But then sometimes your own personal best is relaxing, you know? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Amy Purdy puts it best. I started following her story and she is just, I mean, such a powerhouse female. Um, if you haven't, if you don't know of Amy Purdy, you should definitely go in and, and look at her story, research her and hear her story. But she puts it best because I always say like, I want to get back. I just want to get back to the way that I used to be. I want to get back to being able to run and trail run in the mountains or get on a snowboard. But I love how like she runs a podcast and it's like, it's no longer about like bouncing back. It's about bouncing forward or just moving forward. And it's been a year now and I cannot imagine going back to the person I was before that accident. I literally let that person die in that Canyon the day that I fell. And now, I mean, so many doors have closed, but so many incredible doors have opened And now I'm just moving forward. So it's almost like, how do I get better each day to move forward instead of, you know, saying it like, how do I, how do I get better each day to get me back to where I was, you know? And that was, that was a really tough reality for me as well. But it's it at the end of the day, like I'm hitting a stride, I'm turning a different corner and I'm, I'm a totally different person that I was, you know, a year ago today. Yeah. And it definitely like you said, you, you're moving forward because I'm not Jamie, <laughs> who I was before. Now I'm Jamie Mo Crazy 2.0 um, <laughs> is what I always say. Amen, sister. I love 2.0 because <laughs> you become something new. And it's actually similar that anyone can kind of relate to this because COVID has changed so many lives and everyone oh, yeah. says they just want to get back. They just want to get back. They just want to get back. And it's like, no, you're never going to just get back. Um, You're going to move forward. And that doesn't mean that you're going to wear a mask all day, every day. But, it, you know, so so you might be able to socialize again and move move forward. But you're never going to become exactly who you were before, which is, I think, a big challenge and also a big gift. Because once you keep going and you look back on the thought process of where you are right now, because you're going to keep having some evolution thought process keep going along, you're going to be like, wow, that's a gift. Like, I learned how to weather the storm, weather the storm, and you, you grow from all of that. And you know, it sounds so cliche and I always heard, I got a tattoo, <laughs> which I think is so funny, but it represents my accident and it is cliche. It's like it, my tattoo means here, it says here now. And every time I look at it, it really means like living in the present, taking life as it comes at you because you have control of how you want to respond to what comes at you. Right. And I thought before my accident that I was living in the present, that put, I mean, that was nowhere near living in the present. I mean, now I am just forced to like slow down and I'm such a fat, like my life is led. Like I'm so busy all of the time. I'm constantly moving. I'm constantly looking for new ways to grow in my career and my relationships, you know, or my friendships. And I've had to slow down quite a bit, but at the same time, like 
I'm becoming such a stronger person by doing so. And there always is light at the at the end of the tunnel. And I've definitely made it to that. It's not quite over. I still have to go get all this hardware removed. I guess I didn't even tell you guys like what I what I broke. Um I actually um had compound fractures in my left leg. So my fib and tib, which completely came directly out of my leg, broke along with my ankle on the left on the left foot. I shattered my right calcaneus, which is my heel on my right foot. So that has eight screws and a plate. Um, and then I also broke my pelvis in two places um, and then fractured my L1 and L3. So when I fell in that canyon, I actually had a backpack on that I was pulling the rope from. And we think that that backpack actually saved my spine. And so all of the breaks happened below my waist. Um, So lots of breaks. How fortunate. Yeah, I know, right? How fortunate. Lots of hardware. Um, Spine didn't break. It could have been a lot worse. But I have, you know, in September, I'm getting it all out. And I've heard that some athletes actually make jewelry out of their hardware. That is kind of interesting to me, but um, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see all of the stuff that's that's in my body that I'm very thankful that is coming out. So anyways, that's th- those were my breaks. Yeah, I feel like you, you should definitely like make jewelry or like make a mural, like a paint, <laughs> like something. You can't just like throw it away. It like means too much. <laughs> I know it does. And then a part of me was like, well, I can bury it in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere special, just bury it. Like it's a memorial. I never have to hopefully deal with that again. But I mean, I feel the hardware like crazy. I, I the doctors thought that it would stay in and the doctors always like, they said that at the very beginning, they weren't sure what walking would look like for me. And it's still not sh- like a hundred percent. Um, they did say I would get back to walking, which I have gotten back to, but I want to walk past two miles. I want to be able to like run again and I'm not quite there yet. And I've refused to let, you know, like where I'm at right now be the end all. Um, so it's just, it, it's constant, just one foot in front of the other. And, and like you were saying, like being active and loving the outdoors is really what has been my saving grace. Like I, I don't have a choice. People will probably say this to you all the time, but, and it's so true, Jamie, you are 100% an inspiration. Your story is just phenomenal, just like many other athletes. But when you love the mountains as much as we do, and you love what it provides you, um, there is no choice. You have to get back. So you're going to do whatever it takes to get yourself back into nature, you know, doing the sports that you love, they might look a little different. Like back in, you know, before my accident, it was, you know, snowboarding and trail running. And now I'm mountain biking and and rock climbing in a gym. I've actually gotten back into a harness too. I, I did some rock or I did some rappelling in, in Costa Rica, which was just, I mean, my mom pretty much turned, it would turn over. She, she had a really hard time with that. My family had a hard time hearing that and seeing pictures, but it was just about me taking my power back. Um, but that all that being said is just don't ever give up, right? Like you didn't give up, like you surround yourself by good people who understand your story and where you are and just move forward. Honestly, continue to just put one foot in front of the other and your life might look different, but you're going to end up on top. Wow. 
thank you so much for coming on. We're reaching the end of our time, but I feel like you just kind of summed it up. Take one foot forward, keep going, just don't give up, just t- one foot forward. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a funny quote I read that was like, give up tomorrow, like every day tomorrow, because <laughs> you never actually reach it. Just right. keep, just be resilient and, and keep walking. Yeah. And really quick, right before we end, I just wanted to say, I understand the like putting yourself back in a harness and repelling. Like that was similar for me going back to Whistler. And that's one of the huge reasons why I'm so passionate about getting married at the top of Whistler where you can see the run that I crashed on in the back of the ceremony. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy for you. It's like closure, you know? Yes. Because it just, you need that closure and and it's hard for other people sometimes to understand because it takes different forms, but like all the different types of closure are important. And yeah, it's important to take closure, but then be okay with it and keep going and keep moving. Totally. And feel your feelings. Like cry. If you want to cry because you're happy, because you're sad, like don't feel vulnerable, like feel those feelings, let them out because you're going to be able to get through each one of those emotions or feelings. And then again, be, become a lot stronger because, because you were able to face those emotions and feelings. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming you're on the welcome. show. You're welcome. It was my pleasure.